You're listening to a Comics XF podcast. Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host, Will Nevin and I, dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how are you tonight? Hey, I'm doing just fine. I got to run in early this morning. I had an alarm set, an alarm set for like 2.45. Bells, bells, man. Yeah, so I could so I could be somewhere at four thirty, and then uh, I got in another five miles tonight, uh, and that was followed by a delicious meat and cheese tray and a couple of old fashions. So I'm I'm having a good night. You've had an entire week to think about this. So last week was about which character you know we could vanish down the Batman memory hole. This week, it is which run would you vanish down the Batman memory hole? So I have thought about this. Uh-oh. And I have something that... You're not a big Stephen King person, but are you familiar... Oh, wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Modern Hold on. What King. E- what? Oh, okay. That's fair. I was like, whatever gave you that impression? Because I was reading King in sixth grade. Thank you very much. Right. But you said when we talked about King that you haven't read a lot of the more recent books. No. I Look, I don't read at all. So that would be a no. The novel 1122-63 about the guy who goes back in time to stop the Kennedy assassination. The portal that he goes through, every time he steps through it, it resets back to the way the world was before he left the first time. So basically, if he goes and he comes back and the world is in worse shape, he can just go through again and it's back to the baseline. With what I'm about to suggest, I would want those rules because Uh I would be very curious because this is more a curiosity Mm -hmm pick than an I really want this story gone pick mm-hmm. the intellectual in me the student of literature and the way stories work would be absolutely fascinated to see what a world where Dark Knight Returns ah, I knew happened. it I knew it I knew that was coming I knew that was coming from that preamble absolutely I think it would be fascinating To see what a Batman who never had that story would be like. Similarly, Killing Joke, but I don't think Killing Joke happens without Dark Knight. Mm -hmm. So I think it would be utterly fascinating to see, is Batman a slightly lighter character? Or do we wind up in the same place, basically? Is this a, you know, if God didn't create man, man would create God sort of thing? Was Batman always sort of destined to go down this path? And if Frank Miller didn't do it there, someone else would have? 
This is not like that Batman. Bendis a, would have done it, you know, yeah. 10 years later. It's not like Batman was a light character before that. We've read that some of that stuff. That first Jason Todd story isn't exactly roses and tea parties. It's not like Batman was, you know, Superman stories, duly deputized officer of the law. Dark Knight made him closer to unbalanced. And that's what Batman's been fighting against that ever since. People trying to pull him back from being that dark. And then people seem to want to steer into that skid as well. On that same kind of intellectual curiosity, I'd want to see Frank Miller's career, if not for Dark Knight Returns, right? Does he spend more time at Marvel? Does he spend more time just doing monthly books instead of his own sort of like pet, weird, bad projects? Like, does he get more of an editorial hand that kind of reins him in and focuses him more directly on, you know, good stories? I'm remembering something I once heard and, oh, wow. Okay, that was much earlier. There was an ad in a Marvel comic around the time that Miller became the artist on Daredevil. Originally, he was apparently supposed to be the artist on Doctor Strange. That got as far hmm. as house ads, Roger Stern and Frank Miller. And oh, apparently not. Apparently that the the Doctor Strange thing was announced two years into his run on Daredevil. And a couple of months after he began writing that book. But yeah, it just it didn't work out. But that would have been fascinating in a world where Miller was writing Daredevil with Klaus Janssen doing the art and drawing Doctor Strange with Roger Stern writing it. I mean, would we not have gotten Sin City? Would we have not gotten the Martha Washington stuff or yeah, any of that that work? Because I mean, Dark Knight let him write his own check. If he had to continue to sing for his supper in monthly books, yeah, what would we have gotten? We probably wouldn't have gotten year one, which would have been a shame. But well, we still might have. Because, I mean, that was the same creative team as Daredevil Born Again, which, you know, is not related to Dark Knight. What run did you, were you thinking you'd want to see gone? Well, obviously, you've got more of the history. So uh, I'm going to naturally lean to, to a, into a recency bias. I mean, the, the Tom King run was so ponderous, even as we do have him in the top 10. Just killing off Alfred, right? And apparently editorial is in no rush to bring him back. That takes so much away from the character. And the death was so, so meaningless. And I remember just being so outraged that, you know, we have this big graphic splash page of Alfred dying and it doesn't end that issue, right? The issue ends with a focus on Batcat. I'm like, you just killed Alfred Pennyworth. And that's not the focus of this issue. Like, how dare you? So if for no other reason, and there's a lot of other things that I could dissect about the Tom King stuff, I would push him into the memory hole. I was trying to think of what other 
what you know runs on Batman or Detective, I would completely get rid of, but they either were too inconsequential, like that seven issues by Larry Hama that weren't great. You could get rid of those, but that's not going to affect the grand arc of Batman. It's a fart in the wind. Who cares? Right. Exactly. We wouldn't have Orca. That's about it. But other runs, you'd be throwing out the baby with the bathwater because there would be good things mixed in with some of those other runs that were kind of meh. But I just think the idea of a world where Dark Knight never happened would just see such a fundamental change to the character, or it would be even more fascinating if there was no fundamental change to the character, if the arc of history would have found its way there anyway. Bends toward a more serious Batman. Right. All right, so, time machine. Number one, stop Hitler. Number two, we stop 9-11. Number three, we stop Frank Miller. Yeah. But. Number four, we stop Star Trek Nemesis. Before Into Darkness? Or is there the argument that by stopping Nemesis from happening the way it did, we would never have gotten the Kelvin timeline? I think so. If Nemesis had worked better, we would have gotten the next movie that they had planned And then maybe some kind of Deep Space Nine or Voyager or something original set in that world. Yeah, we we get search for data, maybe something else that puts a big bow on it. And uh, yeah. I would love a big screen, something set in the world of Star Trek. Something with the Federation, but that isn't an established crew. Something that a, a series of movies could really build or a series of just one-offs about, you know, that would have to be a Paramount Plus or what is that what it's called? Paramount. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was that was Fuller's original uh, vision for Discovery. Like it was going to be an anthology series. Mm. But, you know, that didn't exactly work out. That never works. Because that was the original idea for... For those out there who remember it, Heroes, the TV series and NBC, every season was supposed to be a different set of characters in this world. But the network's like, but but people love Masioka and Hayden Panettiere and these other characters. We can't get rid of them. Save the cheerleaders, save the world. Right. But they didn't have a continuing arc for these characters. So they had to like cobble stuff together. And that way lies bad storytelling or awkward storytelling. And that is how sometimes you can get a concept created by one writer that then spins into this whole wild additional mythology. And sometimes you get good results and sometimes less so because tonight Patreon backer Matt McThorne is making making his first request. And it is for stories about the Court of Owls and Talon Calvin Rose. Our first story of the night is Exquisite Dread. This is Batman and Robin, Volume 2, number 23.2. The writer is James Tiny in the Fourth, with pencils by Jorge Lucas 
inks by Lucas, colors by Dave McCaig, letters by Steve Wands, and edited by Mike Martz and Katie Cooper. The cover date is November of 2013. As chaos spreads through the world thanks to the crime syndicate, a member of the Court of Owls takes his daughter deep into the bowels of one of their strongholds, detailing the history of the court and leading to a terrible secret. So we are in the middle of the forever evil event with this issue. And while that is mostly incidental, question mark is at least forming the backdrop of what's going on in this story. This is also Villains Month, where all the titles were taken over by villains, and a lot of the titles were sort of put on a hiatus. There was no issue of Nightwing that month. There was no issue of Catwoman that month. Instead, all four Bat titles were released weekly and each one focusing on a different villain. That's why Court of Owls is 23.2 of Batman and Robin. Bunch of good decisions being made here. Oh, it was a clusterfuck. Can you imagine walking into a comic shop and say, hey, hey, I'm looking for Batman and Robin 23.2. On top of that, and now this is this is fun. These were given lenticular covers. You know, those ones you move it and it looks like the cover is moving. Yeah, I got a lenticular uh, Star Trek here on my wall. It's uh, uh, original series and next gen, depending on where you're looking at it from. But here's the thing. DC didn't plan properly for the demand on those lenticular covers. So the majority of them were shipped allocated if a shop ordered 20 they only got 10 or in some cases five which led to a massive speculator boom and the shops being a big old mess and some of these books were big speculator bait because the the one that specifically jumps to mind was an issue of the dark knight That was the Joker's daughter, who was a new character at this point. And that one was heavily allocated. So there were very few of those lenticular Joker's daughters. Now I'm sure you could find them in a dollar bin. But at that particular moment, that was a big speculated upon issue. But yeah, this was a big mess. And I just remember the one that was... Just the biggest crock was Batman 23.1 because it was the Joker. And people were assuming that, oh, you know, this is after death of the family. And so we hadn't gotten a lot of Joker. Instead, it's a flashback involving how the Joker met the gorilla Jackanapes, who, you know, has become a major feature in those backup stories in those Joker. great backup stories. And it was one of these things where it's written by Andy Cooper. So you have a writer with very little writing in his background. It was really bad. Just and to it, rewind very quickly, Batman, the dark Knight, 23.4 Joker's daughter, lenticular cover. Looks like it'll run you about $90 on eBay. Really? 
Yeah. Wow. I figured that that was, yeah, I'm completely shocked that that still has value to it since the Joker's daughter as a character kind of fizzled. Now, now to be clear, that's uh, graded and slabbed. Ah, okay. A, a, a loose old floppy looks like we can get it for about 20. Huh. Still, I am surprised. But this particular issue is the first real background we get on the Court of Owls from their own perspective. Because any stuff we saw with the owls in, you know, the olden times of Gotham before this, it was more the story of how the Waynes were interacting with the court versus here where it is the story of how the court has dealt with threats to their existence over the past couple hundred years. To me, this was the most interesting story of the night i i loved getting into the lore and and look we didn't get a lot of details right this is not writing a history of gotham like we we don't know this police commissioner that was bumped off we don't know this mayor this photographer like this is not trying to write a comprehensive story of gotham in the court of owls it's just giving you these illustrations these examples these sort of snapshots of the court and its various exercises of power And I thought it was really interesting. And I thought the art was vivid. And it's just a good read. I did not like how it circled back into what I presume is the back half of Talon. But uh, it it was a good time. Yeah. I liked that each of these examples of how the court is sort of threatened and how they deal with those threats are slightly different. That the first one is just a very typical assassination via Talon. And then we get them exerting political pressure. That still ends in death. Well, they all end in death. But we get the political pressure one. Then we get, yes, the death, but death with... Is discreditation even a word? Discrediting the people who were a part of the problem. And then we get how they would deal with a rogue Talon. Granted, since this came out a ways into the Talon ongoing, this is kind of backfilling the origin of a character who we would have already met in Talon. But I like that you don't feel lost in this i didn't remember the order of these and i thought this okay this is the lead-in to talon but no this is taking place a little bit further along into the second arc so it's giving us some background on a character who we'll be talking about next when we talk about the talon series hmm i assumed reading i read spoiler alert we're going to be talking about talon next I read Talon first, and I assumed that we were talking about some character in this issue that I had not met yet, but I guess that's not the case. I honestly, I read these when I was doing our little script. I kind of did a double take because I thought Talon was a book that launched out of Forever Evil. 
But no, Talon launched before. So Talon was another book that would have been put on hiatus for Forever Evil. So this probably was sort of the issue that dropped in that, yes, it was a Batman and Robin issue, but it's sort of also the Talon issue for that month. Great, great stuff. But, you know, it'll sell more if it's called Batman and Robin. Yeah, yeah. Look, if Talon didn't sell, I'm I'm not surprised. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that. The framing narrative here is also real creepy. The Court of Owls, I feel, works best when you never see the owls under their masks. Oh, yeah, for sure. That throughout this whole story, you have Papa Owl and Daughter Owl making their way deeper and deeper into the catacombs of the Orchard Hotel. And as they do, you never see them without their masks. And when they get down there and there's other owls, they're wearing their masks. When you remove the mask, they're just rich douchebags. Yeah, especially when we see this uh, in Talon, when we start to give them names and like familial relationships and their own little goals and side projects and businesses and like this is much less a malevolent force than more of a just a bunch of douchebags it's why you never take the william shatner mask off michael myers it's why Precisely. you never see michael michael myers face because if you do he's just a man it's why in the original credits of that original halloween he's not credited as michael myers he's the shape the shape I like that. Yeah. You don't want to humanize the owls. No, not at all. And so keeping them here and having, you know, the little girl who in the end lunges and stabs the owl guardian at the the bottom of this sort of descent into hell. Yeah, creepy little kids are creepy, but the blank owl mask over her face as she does that i think makes her a little creepier Uh, it does and it's an interesting theme with the owls in that this is just a perpetuation of generational trauma for the shit that i gave like adding in all these familial details that is one interesting aspect that we see in the next story that this is just a continuing infliction from father to son grandfather to father to son just adding on to this trauma. And I think you can have an owl unmasked, but there's a shift. Because there is a scene here where the mayor of Gotham is brought into the Orchard Hotel, and he meets Mr. Orchard, and he's not masked at that point. And they're talking, and then the other owls kind of come out of the shadows and surround the mayor, and they're all going, who, 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 who? And when the mayor turns back around to Orchard, now he's in the mask. There can be a cool transition of when the owl, when a person goes from just rich douchebag to owl, but it has to be done for effect. And it is one of the problems we get with the next story. When the owl is wearing the mask, when the owl is not wearing the mask, they sound pretty much the same. 
not in the mask, they can sound like rich douchebags. When they put on the mask, they need to be bloodthirsty and terrifying. But that was such with the uh, with the mayor in this issue. That was such a good a good stretch of I did what you wanted, and we see the terror on his face as as he's left to die in the labyrinth. Like that was such good visual storytelling. Like just nailed it. And the use of the labyrinth. Snyder left so many building blocks and it would be so easy to overuse them. But here they only use the labyrinth for that one, one bit. As like, that's smart. We didn't need to have everyone who wronged the court tossed into the labyrinth. No, that's, that's a special hell. Not for long though. No. And the end does sort of cycle back to what was going on in Talon. That was, the again, a problem with this Forever Evil thing. All of these were either completely inconsequential or they were just another issue of the series. And, for instance, one that I'm trying to remember... I believe it was in Batman. Yeah. Batman 23.2 was Riddler. And the thing about that was that would have been right. This completely interrupted the flow of all of these books. Because can you imagine you've got the first three parts of Zero Year and then you have to take a month off for all this before you get back in. Blech. And so that Riddler Batman 23.2 was the first Riddler story in the new 52. It references zero year kind of in a foreshadowing sort of way. But again, that's what a lot of these did. And it's just, oh, it was such a mess. This one was actually, as these things go, one of the least messy. I mean, Lord knows, neither Marvel nor DC learn from these mistakes because we still get these, hey, let's take a a break and do this sort of thing. Yeah, so the, the bad titles were Batman was Joker, Riddler, Penguin, and Bane. Batman and Robin was Two-Face, Court of Owls, Rachel Gould and the League of Assassins, and Killer Croc. Dark Knight was The Ventriloquist, Mr. Freeze, Clayface, and Joker's Daughter. And Detective was Poison Ivy, Harley Quinn, Scarecrow, and Man Bat. And who boy, some of these are bad, but that Harley Quinn one is awful. Oh, no. It ends with Harley, I believe, massacring children. Oh, good. Good. That's what you want. If if this is the one I'm thinking of, that's taking the place of the Suicide Squad book for the month because Harley was on the Suicide Squad at that point. Oh, it's just bad. I'm, I'm hemming and hawing. There were some of these that were good because sometimes the writers and the books were able to use these to springboard plots they were working on but not many i think we've we've 
as we're again talking about the background and not about the book itself, I think we're ready. Yeah, the actual substance here is pretty solid. Everything else sucks. Oh, uh, that means it's time for Batman and Robin 23.2. Exquisite dread on the big board. So we have 336 stories on the big board. Number one is the post-crisis origin of Batman, Batman Year One. Down at number 50 is Identity Crisis, not that one. The first story where Tim Drake takes up the mantle of Robin. And once again, at a family-friendly 69, we have Batman and Robin and Howard. At number 100 is Robin Dies at Dawn. At 150 is the first arc of Gotham Academy. Welcome to Gotham Academy. At 200 is My Beloved Blades. At 250 is the Resurrection of Rachel Ghoul crossover. 300 is Deface the Face, the second James Robinson Two-Face story. And hey, at the bottom, it's Curse of the White Knight. Bucks. I I think this is the best book of the night. I could agree on that. Not a real solid night we got tonight. Not a bunch of world beaters in front of us. The halfway point is 168, which is Batman Grendel. I don't think this is better than Batman Grendel. Mm, no. This is not better than Blades at 200. I will say this is better than 218, Detective Comics 824, more of Paul Dini's horseshit. Actually, I think this is better than 206, Heart of Hush. Well, clearly. I think this does a better job of filling in some background on a villain concept without sort of over-explaining it. So if we can agree on that, we're between 200 and 206. That's a, a pretty thin range. Uh, how about right under uh, Injustice Volume 2, 7 uh, to 12? Yeah, I'm good with that. New 202. And the ceiling has been established for tonight. Our second story of the night is Scourge of Owls. This is Talon numbers zero to seven. The writers are James Tiny the fourth and Scott Snyder. The pencils are by Guillaume March and Juan Jose Rip. Inks by March and Vincente Cifuentes. Colors by Tameo Mori. Letters by Sal Cipriano and Desi Cienti, and edited by Mike Martz and Katie Kubert. The cover dates are August of 2012 through June of 2013. Calvin Rose had escaped. Recruited as a child to be a talon of the Court of Owls, he fled rather than do their bidding, saving the woman he was supposed to kill and her daughter. But now, years later, he has returned to Gotham to put the court down for good. But his allies may not be what they seem. Let me tell you what I didn't like about this. These are some stock-ass characters. These are some white bread, vanilla-ass, got nothing going on. This is, I want to say, 
both Tidian and Snyder at just kind of their lowest. Like this is just meek plotting nothing. Right? It's not it's not bad, but it sure doesn't hold your interest over eight issues, right? If not for a twist that I think any reasonable reader could have seen coming, if not for the twist, like it would absolutely be nothing. I don't know how you can take the Court of Owls and make them boring, but they sure enough did. This was Tinian's first real solo outing. Yes, Snyder is credited, but it feels more like Snyder gave him a real rough outline and Tinian ran with it. Mm -hmm. And I think... What got me, and I'm surprised that, I mean, I agree entirely about everything you just said, but this is a painfully overwritten comic. The walls of dialogue in this thing, the heavy narration, it was a slog at times. Yeah, yeah. The, the squabbling between Calvin and... uh his would-be handler. What's what's the guy's name? Sebastian Clark. Yeah. Ah, uh, don't 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 you question my dedication. I'm in this for me, and I'm not doing this for you. And uh, oh, but you would uh, you just had to save that girl, your girlfriend. Blah blah blah. Like, blech. And just it's a a pet peeve of mine. But three of your four-ish main characters are Calvin, Casey, and Clark. There are a million names in the world. Do not have three of your main characters' names all begin with the same letter and sound. Oh, but one of the characters, Eric Washington, I went to uh, to high school with. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> yes, I, and I agree. There are neat ideas here. I think a civil war within the Court of Owls and the idea of sort of factions picking each other off, a fight within a secret society like that is a neat idea. But it's all so melodramatic. Oh my God, is it ever. And I am very curious to read the back half of this before we read Tinian's Joker. Because this does seed stuff in Joker. Bane's connection to the court and a blink and you miss it reference that Cressida, the woman who's Gordon's handler, she's Clark's daughter. Huh. It's one or two panels where they mention it. And there's like a, to learn more, read James Tiny in the Fourth Talon. Which makes me more confident that this was Tinian's book because it says in that Blink and you miss a panel and joke James Tiny in the fourth run on talent. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily be pointing anyone back to this, but hey, you do you, bro. And this was a book that DC was pretty hot on. This was spinning out of Court of Owls. I mean, I think I misread the release dates at the beginning because I, I have a feeling like I copied and pasted wrong. But this came out in November of 2012. I think this was one of the books that they were launching out of Zero Month. 
Yes. So they had initially canceled a few of those new 52 series and they were filling them back in with new books. And this was the, one of the first big releases of the second wave of the new 52. So it was launching two months after court of owls ended because court of owls ends at 11, 12 is the Harper row one off. And now you've got this book. So there was a big push on this book. This was the specific request from Matt McThorne. And as he said, boy, DC really wanted me to think Calvin Rose was going to be a big thing, huh? Stop trying to make Calvin Rose happen. Well, they have. They have completely (laughs) forgotten that Calvin Rose ever happened. And there is that level of frustration of let's show how cool this guy is. Oh, you know, he knew Dick Grayson back in the day and he broke out of cuffs that Batman couldn't break out of period in seconds. There's a level of too competent there that's kind of frustrating. I think the really frustrating thing about this character is that he has no inner life. He has nothing else about him, right? He's an escape artist, but he doesn't even like use that all that often. A handful of times in these, I guess, eight issues, does he demonstrate any time of escape skills? We don't even know why the court wanted him. Like, what use is an escape artist? So I don't even think that this was a fully fleshed out idea. It felt like they needed an escape artist for the one mission that he's given that sets up his entire arc from there. But after that, he probably would have gotten off because he didn't serve any purpose. You don't need an escape artist to be your assassin. It's useful if your target is the, you know, Mrs. Winchester of the DC universe, which the Securitas Island Oh, yeah. It's it's the Winchester house. And when you meet, you know, Mr. Winchester, he is that person. This, you know, except he's not being haunted by ghosts. He's being haunted by the Court of Owls, which, you know, most people would have believed you might as well be haunted by ghosts. Do you know the real story of the Winchester house, Matt Lazowitz? No. It was a way for Sarah Winchester to keep people employed. She did not believe in ghosts. Well, good for her. Yeah. Anyway. I want to like this book more than I do. Again, as I said, the core of it, the the civil war within the court, or the idea of the victims of the court fighting back is a neat idea. But Clark is your typical crotchety mentor this is, he might as well be get chris christopherson in his blade mode to play this character in the movie yeah because he's he's right he's whistler from blade and i love the idea when we eventually get to casey that she's built this whole network of people trying to escape the various crazy secret societies in the DC universe. She's fleeing the court and her inner circle 
are two former members of the cult of Cobra, a former mobster, typical mafioso, and a former member of the League of Assassins. She read to me as someone who was too competent. We just see her as not even a love interest at the beginning. Like she's a damsel. And then like we jump forward years later. It's like, oh yeah, I'm this badass. I've established this network. Like none of this groundwork is laid out. Like it's just so jarring to see her. It's like, oh yeah, I've built this team and this has been my life's mission since you quit on me and you decided to be this coward, you know, Calvin, like, you know, get out of my life. I don't need you. Just uh, it was a, a weird, weird stretch. I had a problem also, too, with the art. Which one of these artists thinks that older people look like zombies? That is absolutely Guillaume March. Uh, Yikes. Uh, This was, uh, I'd say, uh, almost age discrimination in spots. Like, Clark should not look like he is decaying. Like, he should not look reanimated the the visual representations didn't make any sense and i thought the one issue that he didn't do or the the handful were, were much he, stronger he just doesn't do issue two yeah these are two of my least favorite mainstream comic artists on one title how fun for you yeah guillaume march He's, I mean, he's done stuff that's better. I mean, he was one of the principal artists on Joker, on Tinian's Joker. But his stuff is always weirdly angular. And his characters, his female characters are like hyper sexy. And his male characters are just weird. Facial expressions in general, not a strong suit. No. And then Rip, like, here's the thing. Guillaume March comes out of, I believe, adult comics. He worked for Spanish publisher Eros Comics on some of their adult comics as his earliest credits. And Hot. the other guy, uh, Rip, his stuff is Avatar. Ha! He is the current artist on Wolverine and Tony Thornley and I, in our X chat column, we've both said his, again, facial expressions are all over the place and it's got this level of like hyper detail that can be really jarring. And he loves his gore, loves his gore. Uh, That's an avatar man right there. Oh, absolutely. Oh, you remember his... when they were a going concern? Oh, yeah. Weren't those the days? Back in the days of when they were, you know, doing all Garth Ennis and Warren Ellis and Alan Moore. And then Garth Ennis decided to stop doing that stuff and do war comics. Yep. Almost exclusively over at uh, Aftershock, which did not end well. And then Warren Ellis fell out of favor with everyone. And Alan Moore quit comics. And so Avatar is kind of fucked. But yeah. Those I, were the days. Oh, the ways of comic book publishers. Hey, 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 kids, kids. If you listen to this, right? Especially if you're, let's say, under 10. Go ask your mom and dad. Are your dads? Are your moms? 
uh, or just a cool uncle, uh, go ask him uh, for Crossed. Go go oh. pick up Crossed. <laughs> Garth Ennis Crossed from Avatar. Uh, it's a real kid-friendly book. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, just, you look at Gia March's credits, he's done a lot of bat books. He did his first thing was jo- one of the Joker's Asylum one shots, Poison Ivy. But he's done some Batman, he's done some Detective, he did an Azrael miniseries, an Oracle miniseries, Gotham Gazette, Gotham City Sirens, Talon, Joker. This guy's been all over the Bat books. Catwoman, he was the original artist on the new 52 Catwoman, so he's the one who. Drew Batman and Catwoman fucking in masks. Noise. Yeah, I hate that book. We'll, we'll get there at some point. And even our main villain, the main villain we think is the villain from the beginning, because our main villain, let's be fair, is Sebastian Clark. Felix Harmon, the this psychotic serial killer Talon, is again just the broadest of stereotypes. Did you read this in the trade? No, I, I I read it singles popping through Infinite. Oh, okay. So uh, in the trade, we've got some character designs for Felix Harmon. Uh, and he's drawn here with some chains. And these are notes from March. Hidden face. Creepy. Chains. He was a circus scapist that used strength instead of ability? Question mark. And then an arrow from that. Calvin's nemesis. At the very end of this arc, when Bane shows up, there's a moment where Calvin, when he sees the size of the hand coming at him, he's like, Harmon? Before Bane reveals himself. That would have worked better if Harmon was more Bane-like. A little more interesting. I mean, he's the, the greatest tracker in the world. But that's a very tell, oh not yeah, show moment. Oh, there's a oh. lot of that in this. Book. Yes, this book is like tell writ large. To me, like the Bane appearance is just an absolute groaner, right? You have set up Harmon as basically Talon Bane, and then you're going to give me the original Bane, and I'm like, okay, eventually the, you're going to have a big monster fight in this book, and I'm like, this is not that clever. But as you pointed out, there is a little something underneath all of this that we see with fathers and sons and the trauma that they inflict. Because we open on Calvin having been put in a cage by his own father, who we never see and we just have to assume is an abusive monster. But then we repeatedly see throughout this Orchard, who was the grandmaster of the court, who when his son rejected the legacy of the Orchards, he had his son made into a talent. And then we see the O'Malley's, who are three generations of talents, and the youngest O'Malley decided to not sire an heir because he didn't want his son to have done to him what was done to Nathaniel O'Malley. And even Casey, with her father, who was so haunted and broken by the court that 
he locks himself and her away from the world. You see what Tinian can do as a writer here, because that is the kind of stuff that that's Tinian's bread and butter. Trauma and the sins that we inflict upon each other. But this is a very raw, early work from a writer who is still honing his craft. Absolutely. And I think that's a that's a very good way to look at this book. There are emanations and penumbras here of of things that could be interesting. Uh, but Calvin Rose is not one of them. He's just a big old nothing burger. Oh, and this, of course, takes place right on the heels of Death of the Family. So there's a whole scene with Dick and Bruce in the Batcave and Dick giving Bruce the stink eye over death of the family. I know you gave some lip service as to why Dick was here, but that scene doesn't work. It's just there so Dick can kind of recognize Calvin Rose. He's in the red costume. It shouldn't count. I think it would have been more interesting if it was Dick who runs into Calvin later in the series and not Bruce. Because there's a connection there. That is never explored. No, none None of this goes anywhere interesting. Calvin doesn't get to do any like cool escape artist stuff. You know, none of this possible bond with Nightwing is explored. Though the women in this book don't have any agency or independence outside of, you know, being part of Calvin's story. It's just so much unexplored. Wycliffe, the new Grandmaster of the Court of Owls, again, he's just might as well be twirling his mustache. He has no life of it. Ha ha, I am the Grandmaster of the Court of Owls. And that's fine if he's standing at the top of the labyrinth in a ring, looking down and just being sinister. But no, we have this whole scene with him villain splaining at calvin it's just sort of there it is it is very much mostly there i think we're good that means it's time battalion ought through seven scourge of the owls on the big board okay so the ceiling as we said is 202 my floor this is by no means in the oh god this is problematic range this might be in the this is kind of boring range though yes you know if we had organized these various episodes differently this could have easily been read alongside gates of gotham as a comparison of snyder mentor jobs I've been scrolling around looking for Gates of Gotham. I haven't found it yet. And yes, I could easily do a find in the document, but that's the coward's way out. As mad as typing. Gates of Gotham is higher. Gates of Gotham is, I know it's somewhere in the, like, yeah, it's in the mid, it's in, it's 159. There's more in that story in fewer issues. Yes. And that is the secret to doing comparatively well on the board, doing more with less. Yes. And the the fast track to a bad book is doing less with more. 
All right, let me throw one out at you. All so right. This is, this is eight issues. Also eight issues. Face the face at 269. Face the face. A two-faced story. James Robinson, right? Yep. I don't remember anything else. Bruce adopts Tim. Harvey re-scars himself. Great White Shark turns out to be the mastermind behind all of the ills in Gotham at the moment. A much more surprising twist than, oh, Simon Clark is a bad guy. What is my floor? Catwoman election night. I think. Okay. I, I will 289. Definitely, definitely agree. That is probably where things below that are either bad, boring, or stuff from the golden age that is just sort of building blocks, but in themselves are just sort of stories that need to be there for better things to build from them. I think Catwoman Election Night is when things things from there start going really downhill. This probably has more substance than uh, 276 or Land of the Free. All right, I'm going to throw a spot at you. Okay. New 274. In between Grim Knight in Gotham and the Joker graphic novel. I'm thinking somewhere around there because Joker, the Joker graphic novel is better. Look, if that did not have the Libra Mayho art, that would be down in the two nineties or probably the three hundreds. But the art is so nice despite it being awkward and at times problematic. Yeah. I like this at two seventy four. It's funny, that puts it directly below the Grim Knight one-shot, which is also James Tynion and Scott Snyder. It's fun to now have the uh, the creator credit on my list. Our final story of the night is Court Fight. This is Batman The Adventures Continue, Season 2, Numbers 1 and 2. The writers are Alan Burnett and Paul Dini, with art by Ty Templeton, colors by Monica Kubina, letters by Josh Reed, and edited by Andrew Marino and Chris Conroy. The cover dates are August to September of 2021. Mayor Hamilton Hill has been murdered, and all signs point to a myth, the Court of Owls. Batman is joined by Deadman as they investigate the organization, the Talon Assassins, and the Hill family. Matt, it's time for some role play. Oh, no. You are Paul Dini. Pitch me your story. See, you're actually getting to a point where I was kind of going to ask, like, what do you think they were thinking when they decided to do this with the Court of Owls? Damn you. Okay, so I want to bring the Court of Owls into the animated universe. I mean, we, we did Jason Todd and Deathstroke in the last volume. So let's start with the Court of Owls in this one. Yeah, sounds good. Love it. And we're going to use dead man because i like dead man uh, i i like that less uh but uh okay okay are you gonna have zatanna in here of course how could i not get the fuck out get the fuck out of my office 
the Zatanna cameo is gratuitous. Oh, is it ever? Never in a dead man story have we needed Batman to have some sort of magical who's he what's it to let him see dead man when dead man can possess anybody walking by. But he does look silly with the who's he what's it. He does. I'm reading this story and I'm trying to figure out what it is about it that feels off. I think it's it's too it's doing too much, right? Because Hamilton Hill is very much an established core is probably the wrong word of the animated series universe, but you know, he is the freaking freaking mayor of Gotham. Like he is an important major character. And if you want to do what amounts to a, a heel turn here, right? If you want to make him this corrupt, nefarious figure, like Okay, that's cool. But that should be the focus of the story. He should that should be the essence of the piece. If you want to bring the Court of Owls into the animated series universe. Okay, that's really cool. Like I I want to see you explore that idea. But that should be the focus of the story. That should be the emphasis. That's the thing that should be explored. And then to bring Dead Man on top of all of that is a distraction. The burrito is overstuffed. It is bursting at the seams, and you're mixing too many flavors here. And to add in this very undercooked noir beat with Hill's son and wife. Yes. That I feel like could have paid off later. If we had seen that, come back around in mayor mayhem where hamilton jr is running for mayor then i would have had less of a problem with it but i know it goes nowhere we never see mrs hill again the two intervening one-offs don't really connect much with any of that it's a huntress and batgirl one-off and a batman and montoya one-off So I don't know why we needed that additional beat, why Hamilton Jr. needed to be an embezzler, because it comes to nothing and it doesn't benefit the story other than, I guess it's a reason for Hamilton Sr. to have the Talons kidnap him. I guess. The Talons do look cool in the animated series style. Yeah, and... The owls continue to be a cool concept in whatever universe they're in. I would wish that we had been able to sit with this Batman a little more as he kind of explored it and thought about it. It's like, oh, you know, I'd always heard this this nursery rhyme, but I had never given it much thought. But, you know, of all the years I've been around here, I've seen these things and about how gotham just can't be challenged sometimes it can't be beaten and i wonder if possibly uh there's some conspiracy here going on right i've always sort of speculated that maybe something maybe this is real but i've never seen any evidence well now the evidence is staring me in the face what does that mean i think your statement before this was overstuffed works for a lot of what's going on because it's also okay he can't just go to the Gotham Historical Society to see, you know, these supposed artifacts of the Court of Owls that 
are there the historical society that most people believe were just props that people made up to play into this. It has to be General Vreeland and Veronica to add in more characters from the animated series. And the other weird thing is that Dead Man is referencing that issue of Gotham Adventures that we covered way back when on this show, which is weird because none of that stuff is technically canon. Oh, that is weird. But it's clear that he's referencing that issue because it's about Bruce and Dick helping find his killer. Dead Man never appeared on Batman the Animated Series. And his one appearance in Justice League contradicts this. So it's strange that that was specifically being referenced here. I do like Dead Man possessing Alfred and making Alfred do backflips. He is very spry. Yes. Reading this whole story, I think the thing that befuddled me most is the big change to the owl lore here in the main dc universe the court of owls has existed in secret all this time here the court somehow despite having been active probably back in the 30s or 40s because veronica vreeland who is of bruce's age Her grandfather was killed by a talent and her father was, you know, he's got the buzz cut. He was in the military. So he had to be about 20 then. So he's got, he's probably in his sixties now. So the court was active 40 years ago. Now they're just gone. And Hamilton Hill has, you know, seemingly resurrected them. But how? We get no explanation as to how he found the talent, why he is the only owl. Because there are no other owls. He's the only owl. And he somehow has a talent. None of that is explained. It felt like there were big gaps in this story that were more interesting than, hey, let's have Dead Man in here and get a few pages with Zatanna. Again, if you wanted to make Hamilton Hill a member of the Court of Owls or even the Grandmaster of the Court of Owls, great but let's really explain it and he's her dad's age why would veronica vreeland have invited him to one of her you know parties that the general seems to look down on it doesn't seem like the kind of place you invite the mayor maybe the mayor's son and after hill is resurrected He looks entirely different. I get the idea of de-aging him, but they go a bit too far into, uh, okay, so we turn his hair black. He loses the glasses. The design is an entirely different character. It is a very strange visual disconnect in addition to all of uh, this narrative that doesn't quite make sense. And I, I was not particularly in love with the, you know, the Harridan wife trope she's the power behind the throne sort of thing and the the fact that you needed to bring in his young son because his young son appeared in an episode of batman the animated series so you couldn't just ignore the fact that he had this younger kid but 
bringing him in seemed to really serve no purpose other than, oh, the fans will call us out for not mentioning the younger son. Mm -hmm. On the plus side, just in general, the art here is really, really nice. Ty Templeton does a really good job with the fights, with the owls. Yeah, aside from the resurrected hill design, it's it's a solid looking book visually. I was also confused, and this is one of those things where I I scratched my head because there's one line when Hill is talking about the founding families of Gotham. He mentions the Mayfields, who that's setting up Mayor Mayhem because he's a Mayfield, but also the Marshes. And I Googled, and there is no connection to Marshes in animated series or Gotham history. If it were March, then maybe Lincoln March? But no mention of the Waynes or the Cobblepots or the Elliots or the Canes, the the usual founding families of Gotham. And I can understand bringing in the Mayfields, but I don't know why you'd throw in that other name. And that's just, that's me picking nits, I admit. If somebody can pick up what that's supposed to be, let me know. Uh, let's see. Quick Google search. The Waynes, the Canes, the Crown family, the Elliots, the Gothams. The Orgums now. Or the Arkhams slash Orgums. Right. The Crowns are the ones who spin directly out of the Court of Owls stuff. The, the wiki does mention the DC animated universe probably coming right from this issue, the marshes, the Mayfields, and the hills. Yeah, that, that is right from this issue. But I've never seen the marshes mentioned anywhere else. So unless that was something that maybe was supposed to set something up that never winds up being paid off. We will never know. We've read way worse than this. This is not bad. It feels like there's so much untapped potential. And this might have been a story that if you wanted to have the Dead Man stuff in there, you needed another issue Yep. to play out some of the rest of this stuff and make it more of a mystery. Not just the mystery of the court, but who is behind the whole thing. Because it seems like, like I think there was, you know, you were supposed to think that maybe Hamilton Jr. was the owl, but it, it nothing is given enough space to really develop in here. Mm -hmm. I like Jeannie and Burnett's take on Dead Man. I think they write a really fun Dead Man. I just want more beyond that. Unless you have anything else, I think I'm good. This is a strange take on the court. And you've already mentioned this, but it is very odd for Hill to just kind of stumble into the court and think it's a, a court that is abandoned uh, or dead or whatever. And Hamilton thinks, oh, this is really cool. Like, why does Hamilton Hill need more power? He's already the mayor of Gotham. And more than that, because I, I think as we've seen with, you know, billionaires wanting political power, you can never have too much power, but why suddenly this crazy occult power? And again, he was able to somehow break this impenetrable 
cipher on the how to make a Talon book. Eventually, the book gave up its secrets to me. Right. Somehow, Palpatine returned. (laughs) The dead speak. And I mean, yes, I guess I understand that. You know, I was saying before how he got the one Talon. I guess the book told him how to make some guy a Talon. But I want to know why there was no Court of Owls. Why Hamilton Hill had to resurrect the whole thing. Give me half a page that explains that infighting within the court destroyed it or because there, there there was no there were no golden age heroes no generation of heroes in the animated universe before the justice league so it can't be that green lantern or something interfered with them but it just it doesn't we don't no idea why the court was active 40 years ago and suddenly in the intervening 40 years flat out just ceased to exist Batman made them skirt and they went into hiding. Yeah. And again, if this were building to a story where the real Court of Owls returns, that, you know, they viewed Hill as a usurper and let him do whatever because we have our own plans. Great. That's a good setup. But we get Mayor Mayhem and then we get the straight man joker arc in season three and then Raish suddenly has all the talons serving him at the end of season three maybe you could have tied that in that there was no court of owls that it was all the league of assassins in this universe and the text and all that was stuff planted by Raish. again you could have at least paid this off somehow the court is actually the league of shadows yeah I, I, you could have done that. But it felt like this plot was backing itself into the end where young Hamilton Hill has an army of Talons and Batman and Dead Man are fighting them. Yep. And some stories work when you're backing your way into them. I think I've heard many a mystery writer knows the end and then builds the mystery to get to the end. But that's a different type of story. I think this one was just sort of meh. Been a meh kind of night. All right. I believe that sound of profound meh means it's time to put Batman. The Adventures Continue, Season 2, 1 and 2, Court Fight on the big board. I think this, this falls in between the two stories. Absolutely. Mayor Mayhem is actually a little bit above Exquisite Dread. Or no, a little below, excuse me, it's 204. It's below Mayor Mayhem. I'm wrestling with this one. Yeah, this is, this is tough. Okay, I will say, I'm not sure it's it's entirely my ceiling, but I know I prefer 221 Mad Men Across the Water. That's absolutely sure. How about right above Officer Down? Yeah, I can definitely go with that. So that would make it the new 229? New 229. And that does it for tonight. Next week, it's our annual Yuletide episode of Holiday Stories in Gotham. We would like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, Josh Wheel, 
Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum. Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley. Go Utes. Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus. Bobby Two Bucks. Tim Rooney, Giorgios Raggioli, David Wheel, Alexander Wheel, and Matt McThorne. McThorny. For their support. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, Comics, Cinema, and Cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLess1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend, Dan Grote, and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>